Hello, and welcome once again to the Expanding Eyes podcast, where we are fast approaching the climax of Homer's Iliad, which is book 22, the showdown between Hector and Achilles. Brought about by the death of Patroclus, Achilles' best friend, back in book 16, as we discussed last time. Patroclus begged Achilles in a moment of emergency where it looked as if the Trojans, having broken through the defenses of the Achaeans, the Greeks, beginning to set fire to the ships, were going to simply wipe out the Achaean army. Patroclus begged to go out in Achilles' armor, gaining a psychological surprise because the Trojans would think it's Achilles returning and panic because Achilles' reputation is well-known and thoroughly deserved. Buying some time, but Patroclus goes out and disobeys the express orders of his friend not to try to take Troy on his own and not to go up against Hector by himself. He does that and Hector kills him. And there ensues a melee, a wild battle for the body and the possession of that armor. Meanwhile, that takes us up to book 18. Meanwhile, again, as we discussed last time, Antilochus comes back and breaks the news to Achilles, who goes wild with grief. His mother, Thetis, comes out of the sea, Nereid that she is, with her train of sea nymphs, comforts her son, and solves the problem. They do not have armor for Achilles any longer. Hector is out there in possession of the armor, or about to be, because there is still a huge ongoing battle over the body of Patroclus going on. The first thing that happens is that the goddess Hera sends the goddess Iris down to tell Achilles, go to the trenches, go to the defenses, go up on the ramparts, and show yourself so that it will panic the Trojans long enough in the battle over the body that the Greeks can recover that body. Iris is one of the two messenger deities, not just in the Iliad, but in Greek mythology. The main one is Hermes, Latin Mercury, known as the Western Union emblem in our time, the guy with the wings on his heels, the doughboy helmet with wings on it carrying the rod called the caduceus, the messenger. But Iris is also a messenger, a minor deity, but she is a personification of the rainbow. And the rainbow here, therefore, implicitly, is like the rainbow bridge, Bifrost in Norse mythology, between bridging the heavens and the earth. As fans of Norse mythology 
or at least of Thor comic books and movies very well know. Here Iris does come down and Achilles obeys her. He shows himself on the ramparts and not only that but three times cries his terrifying war cry and the Trojans blood just freezes because not only is this Achilles but they know damn well that that war cry means he's going to be out on that battlefield very soon and he is going to be foaming at the mouth looking for blood. Little special effects added by the gods on top of that that flames appear above Achilles' head and this all panics the Trojans enough that the Greeks manage to get the body back but not the armor. And that's the next problem where we left the narrative last time. Can't go out into battle without any armor. And we will pursue that in a moment. But briefly before that, the Trojans, now having fallen back a bit, are in a parley. Uh-oh. He's going to be back out here. What do we do now? And briefly, only two-page episode, but briefly, in Book 18, a good friend of Hector's, Polydemus, urges Hector, we should fall back. We, I know that we have gained almost the ships themselves, but it's no longer prudent we should fall back. And this is a crucial moment because Hector stubbornly refuses. And it isn't just stubbornness. He's in the grip of the heroic code. And this is the moment, perhaps, you could point to many moments where the final tragic turning point could be said to lie but this is certainly a moment. Hector's refusal will doom him, as he himself later says, realizing big mistake. But now he angrily refuses. Helmet flashing, Hector wheeled with a dark glance. No more, Polydemus, your pleading repels me now. And he goes on to say, but now, the moment the son of crooked Kronos allows me to see some glory here at the ships, you want to retreat. No way. And the Trojans roared assent, lost in folly. Athena had swept away their senses. The gods acting invisibly, but truly as so often in the Iliad with a certain amount of ambiguity about that fact. At any rate, the problem remains on the other side. The camera moves, so to speak, my cinematic metaphor that runs all the way through the Iliad. We see these vivid visual shots, as we think, influenced by the technique of film. The camera returns to the Achaean side and Achilles is indeed ready to go out there. 
he announces basically his forthcoming death. He knows he's going to go out there, and he knows that that means the prophecy will come true. For not even I will voyage home again, never. No embrace in his halls from the old horseman Peleus, his father, nor from my mother Thetis. This alien earth I stride will hold me down at last. But we're not there yet. No armor. The problem remains. Mom to the rescue yet again. Thetis, in Book 18, goes up on Mount Olympus and visits the workshop of Hephaestus, which is where we left off the last time. And as I had begun to say, this is almost literally a magic moment in the Iliad. It's an extraordinary scene because the workshop of Hephaestus is amazing. Suddenly, in this ancient epic, we are confronted with what almost amounts to science fictional imagery. The imagery of a scientist out of the future with all sorts of glitzy technological innovations. What this goes back to, if you read the scholarly commentators and their historical view, is the position of the smith in Achaean society, Mycenaean society, in terms of actual historical labels. It's the Bronze Age, but they had just learned how to smelt bronze, an alloy that does not occur in nature, has to be made, and you have to know how to do it, and then learn how to cast it into such things as weapons and other implements. And it was a rare skill, and it conferred great prestige on smiths. So great that Hephaestus is really a representation of the prestige of the position of smith, so much so that it is projected right up to Mount Olympus, even though Hephaestus uniquely, strangely, totally violates the conventional decorum of Mount Olympus. He is a working-class guy. He is lame. He works at a hard, sweaty, manual labor job. And yet, he makes these amazing things that are miraculous. As the British science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke once famously said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that was true in the time of Homer as well. The technology of Hephaestus strikes us as magical because the two things were not distinguished, technology and something supernatural and miraculous. And the imagery of this episode reflects that amazingly. Thetis reaches Hephaestus' house, and the first thing that she sees, there she found him sweating, a god who sweats, working at manual labor, a very large anomaly in the social conventions of that time, 
wheeling round his bellows, pressing the work on twenty three-legged cauldrons, an array to ring the walls inside his mansion. He bolted golden wheels to the legs of each, so all on their own speed at a nod from him, they could roll to halls where the gods convened, then roll right back home again, a marvel to behold. Hephaestus has invented automation. Thetis walks in and is seen by and greeted by Hephaestus' wife, which here in the Iliad is Charis, one of the three graces in Greek mythology. In our discussion of the Odyssey, we learned that this is a discrepancy between the two epics, whatever we make of that, because we have among the Phaeacians in the Odyssey episode, we have the story of Aphrodite and Hephaestus being married, and Aphrodite commits adultery with Ares. But here, a different wife, Charis, still managing to marry some very attractive female figures. Charis is one of the three graces. The grace the illustrious crippled smith had married, as the text puts it. <clears throat> and Hephaestus greets her with a reference for the reader's sake or the listener's sake in the original. Ah, Thetis, who saved my life when the mortal pain came on me after my great fall, Thanks to my mother's will, that brazen bitch. Okay, is that nice to say about your mom? But she wanted to hide me because I was a cripple. Okay, we are not politically correct and we are angry here. What that's referring to is the episode that had also been referred to, if you recall, clear back in book one. A time when Hephaestus had tried to intervene in a marital quarrel, one of many, between Zeus and Hera, and Zeus hurled him off of Mount Olympus. He fell nine days and nights, went splat on the Isle of Lesbos, Lemnos, and had to be nursed back to health again because the gods cannot die, but they can be hurt. And here we learn that Thetis saved him and got him some help after his fall at that point. Therefore, Thetis is going to get the armor that she has come for, for the sake of her son. So Thetis has a apparently common method of doing favors for people and then calling them in. It works, what can we say? So Hephaestus sets to work and he has help more science fictional imagery. Handmaids ran to attend their masters, master, all cast in gold, but a match for living, breathing girls. Intelligence fills their hearts, voice and strength their frames. From the deathless gods, they've learned their works of hand. Not only does he have automation, he's got robots, female golden robots. And with this help, he sets to work. And for the entire rest of book 18, which is like half a dozen pages, he fashions first the armor, but then at great length, 
the, the Amazing Shield of Achilles, a famous episode of the Iliad, though the question arises, why? Because the description of that shield goes on in my edition for five pages, clear to the end of book 18. Interrupting the battle at this climactic, or should be climactic, moment where we know that Achilles is eager to go back out into battle, and yet it keeps getting delayed. The final showdown does not occur for three books down the line, book 22, and there keeps being more and more delays. And what is this? Why is Homer stalling, so to speak? What's going on here? Is this an artistic blemish? There's an old catchphrase, even Homer nods. In other words, even Homer has his off moments. And there are a few here and there, in most people's opinion. But it always pays in discussing and interpreting any work of art, as I always tell students, it pays to at least operate on the initial assumption that there might be some artistic strategy and reason for a puzzling or seemingly anomalous moment and see where you get by asking the question, does this serve some aesthetic purpose? We get to that through looking at the enormous description of the shield. Yes, it's a great shield for a great warrior, and part of this is simply to rev up the glamour quotient, show that the greatest of all warriors has the greatest of all shields, great designer shield. But there must be more than that because there's too much detail and the detail seems too significant if we could only figure out what that significance is. We can run through this. I have scholarly commentaries which actually draw pictures of this schematically and when I'm in class I'm able to draw a picture on the board for us to see it, but it's easy enough to imagine in your mind's eye. First of all, of necessity, as we'll see, it's a circular shield. And we begin in concentric rings, looking at the illustrations or illuminations on that shield, beginning at the center of it, where there are what we would call the heavens. There he, meaning Hephaestus, made the earth and the sky and the sea, the inexhaustible blazing sun, the moon rounding full, and there the constellations, the heavens above, though shown here as the center. Then radiating out from there in concentric circles, these scenes, first of all, in the second, concentric circle, two halves of that circle, showing two cities, a 
city at peace and then a city at war. In the city at peace, there are peacetime activities, some of which are indeed peaceful. The first thing shown is a wedding. However, this is not the Phaeacians. There is still conflict and strife, even though it's a city at peace, because we also see in another part of that city a dickering over a blood price for a kinsman just murdered. However, it's still a city at peace because despite a murder, there is still civil justice, which resolves the problem legally rather than through revenge and further murder. But then, opposed to that, contrasting with that, a city at war. We like to think, or perhaps before the last 42-some days, we would have liked to think that war is a rare and unfortunate interruption in a modern world, and peace is the default setting, so to speak. Perhaps we're learning differently. Perhaps we only delayed a return to what would have been true in Homer's time, and even up as far as Tolstoy with his significantly titled War and Peace. These are the two more or less equal phases of human life as the Greeks saw it. Two cities. Then, moving out in a further concentric circle, we move from urban to rural, and again, it's very orderly portraying the world of that time. The traditional three seasons are shown out in the rural uh, circle of designation. According to the activities that the rural or farming world would have been going through in those seasons, plowing in the winter, reaping in the summer, and gathering the vintage in the autumn. This is true in the Iliad. It's actually true elsewhere in European literature that there were only three seasons, which is why in some early English literature, you get references that to us used to the four seasons throw us rather off. There's an ancient medieval English lyric, Sumer is a kumen in, lud sing kuku. Sumer is a kumen in looks to us like summer, but it actually means spring is coming in. And the fourth season got added later. But at any rate, these were the traditional seasons oriented around, as here, the ag agricultural calendar. And then there are cattle and sheep and the herding as well as the agricultural. And finally, in the furthest circle, out at the edge of the shield, there is a portrayal girdling that shield of Ocean River, a weird reference again to modern ears. Ocean River, contradiction in terms. How is an ocean like a river? Sounds like one of Gollum's riddles in The Hobbit. 
an ocean is like a river if you live in ancient times in Greece, surrounded wherever you go, wherever you sail, you are surrounded by water, the Mediterranean, on all sides. And therefore, the belief grew up in earliest times that the ocean, though you can't see to the other shore of it, so-called, was actually a river that girdled the earth all the way around, which is why the shield has to be round. And that's the shield. There is even more detail that I haven't paused to mention. Why all this? Partly, yes, for the stake of the glamorous prestige of the heroes. Wonderful armor, that's a motif that goes on clear into medieval times. But more than that, why these particular images described in so much detail? And what, as you may have begun to realize as I described it, what we're getting is a picture of the whole Greek world and all the typical scenes in it, not specific events like the plot of the Iliad, but the typical recurrent scenes of human life, war and peace, harvest and vintage, and so forth. Again, why that? I have no answer key to the Iliad and neither to any of the scholars that are specialists and know more than me, but I don't think we need that. We just think about what is the effect of this coming as it does right in the middle of what Yeats in a poem called the fury and the mire of human veins. All of the terrible battle that has been going on for book after book and we know now will reach a crescendo coming soon. Suddenly we are lifted out of that into a picture of the same world but seen in a very different way from a different perspective from a detached, removed perspective. We could say it was a God's eye point of view with the, we have the catchphrase, Olympian detachment of the gods who looked down upon the action. But we're viewing it too. How are we doing that? Through a work of art. Homer is not about to give us a piece of literary criticism here in his theory of art, but we can implicitly see that one of the functions of art is to lift us out of the fury and the mire of the present moment, whatever that is, and enable us to see it by distancing it. And what was terrible while we were stuck inside it, violent, terrifying, and so forth, suddenly becomes beautiful. It becomes an element of design. It's an extraordinary moment, and this technique of describing a work of literature inside another work of literature is, by the way, a recurrent literary technique, strange as that may seem, it even has a name, a Greek name uh, for that matter, ekphrasis. 
It occurs in Spencer's Fairy Queen. You might get a description of a tapestry that portrays all of this and that. It even appears in Shakespeare's Cymbeline, where the villain of the piece describes a painting in the husband's wife's bedroom as proof. It's a lie, but proof he claims that he's actually been in that bedroom and bed, been to bed with his wife. And that drives the plot, as you can imagine. But this description of this amazing shield. So Thetis gets her money's worth, and Hephaestus pays off his favor. And that takes us back then in Book 19 to the realm of the mortals. And the next thing we see in another one of those amazing visual moments is the goddess Thetis coming out of the water. She has returned to her element, but then comes out of the water on the shore to lay this wonderful armor down at the feet of Achilles. And this is the description. It is absolutely worth quoting. The goddess laid the armor down at Achilles' feet, and the gear clashed out in all its blazoned glory. A tremor ran through all the Myrmidon ranks. None dared look straight at the glare. Each fighter shrank away. Not Achilles. The more he gazed, the deeper his anger went, his eyes flashing under his eyelids, fierce as fire, exulting, holding the gods' shining gifts in his hands. Wow. Well, this is great, but we're still not ready to go back out. It becomes really rather funny in a sense. We have, first of all, to do some patching up with our comrades with whom we have been alienated for 19 books now. And in come the walking wounded, Diomedes, Odysseus, and Agamemnon, who had been taken out of the battle with minor injuries in previous books. And we get the closest thing to a patching up of the quarrel that we're going to get, that Achilles is going to get, from good old Agamemnon, who has not changed character, I'm afraid. He starts out sounding the note of reconciliation. Enough. Let bygones be bygones. Done is done. Despite my anguish, I will beat it down, the fury mounting inside me, down by force, and so forth and so on. But he just can't keep his mouth shut. It's such a vivid character portrait of an egotistical man. But I am not to blame. Zeus and fate and the Furies stalking through the night, they are the ones that are to blame. This is a famous passage. Agamemnon never can take responsibility. He makes bad decision after bad decision, but I am not to blame. He might seem to say that at a moment, but then he walks it back again in the next moment. Here, he blames Ruin, who is the goddess Ate, who is the daughter of Eris, 
who is the goddess named Strife, who actually caused the whole Trojan War with her golden apple, and goes on to talk about, well, ruin blinded me, and she even blinded Zeus once, and goes on to tell a story <coughs> about Heracles and Zeus. But whatever, Agamemnon offers the gifts, he does offer the payment that he had cataloged back in book nine. Achilles says, produce the gifts if you like, as you see fit, or keep them back, it's up to you. All I care about, he goes on to say, is battle. Now they can't keep him off the battlefield, which becomes, again, in kind of an oddly humorous side moment, a kind of a problem in itself because Odysseus, the rational one as usual, has to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know that you can't be stopped because you're running on rage and pure enthusiasm, but you have to have an army behind you to do this. And the army right now is exhausted. They need to eat and rest and so forth. And Achilles says, fine, fine, fine. All right, let them eat, but I'm not going to eat until I finally killed Hector, blah, blah, blah. And book 19 is close to ending when all of a sudden at the end of it, two events occur, one full of pathos and a bit of an enigma, the other perhaps not intended to be funny, but it strikes us as so. The poignant event is Briseis. Briseis, the poor war prize, comes in. This woman has not gotten a word in edgewise in the entire Iliad, but all of a sudden burst into a speech when she sees the body of Patroclus. She mourns him and lets us know that it was Patroclus who had been kind to her while she was there, a captured prisoner, treated her kindly and got Achilles to agree to eventually marry her. And this is poignant because this is the man who is now lying dead, a, a good man who did something nice and did something nice for the sake of a woman, which in the Iliad is noteworthy. The other event that occurs is, believe it or not, Achilles' horse. He has two horses that are mentioned by name in the Iliad that run his chariot, usually left in the original Greek, and this horse's name was Xanthus, but uh, Robert Fagels, whose translation I have always used, translates it as Roan Beauty, which sounds like something out of an American Western. The horse, believe it or not, inspired by the gods, starts talking and prophesying the death of Achilles. Achilles knows this anyway. He doesn't need the prophecy. He even mentions, it's the maybe the only mention, I'm not sure, of in the Iliad of Achilles' son, Neoptolemus. Achilles mentions him being somewhere among the living. 
And as usual, nowhere in Homer is there a mention of who the mother is, but he, he does acknowledge that he has a son as he knows he's going to die, and the horse is there to remind him of that, weird but true. And in book 20, he finally, after 20 books of an epic, goes out to battle again, even though there is still delay and the showdown will not be until book 22. And that is a week away for us. We will return to that point and to the climactic moment of the Iliad next week.